0: In speaking with some of you today, some of you who are here for your first retreat, and others of you who are here for uh, a second or third time, I could hear in the uh, response to the question, well, "Well, why are you here? What, why?" A retreat like this now. I could hear under so many personal reasons that we all recognize some level of distress, uh, suffering, um, some idea that life might possibly be better, Maybe maybe we're at a transition in our life. We go through a lot of transitions, whether it's job transition, relationship transition, aging transitions. And we can sense that there's other uh, horizons of the mind to uh, open to, to awaken to. And underneath all that is the wish to be happy, to be at ease in life, to find some uh, purpose and meaning that's uh, important to us. But just as if we were to travel to a foreign country, it would be beneficial to learn about that country before we go. And to the extent that we read up on it, come to understand the uh, customs and uh, culture and the behaviors of the people there, we would feel more uh, secure, safe. We'd at least feel like we understood what was going on. And so too, in coming to a retreat like this, It's helpful to have uh, an understanding, really, of what it is we're doing here so that we can feel uh, safe and secure and that we're making best use of our time, really. I don't think any of us come here without having spoken to someone about what's a retreat like. Right? I mean most of us have friends or have heard about it and so we have, we have learned something from others about what their retreat was like. <laughs> well, back in the early days there wasn't anybody to ask who, wh- what a retreat is like and in fact um, I, I went to my first retreat, actually thinking I was going to something like a resort. <laughs> you know, I was living in a commune and a friend of mine said, oh, I'm going away for a couple of weeks to uh, blah, 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 down at the coast. And this was in central Maine. And I said, oh, that, that sounds nice. I, I'd like to go there. And prior to that time, I didn't know anybody who meditated, never heard anything about Buddhism didn't have any interest in it. Spiritual life was not my aspiration in life. It was a pure accident. <laughs> and I got to this old Catholic monastery and the first three-month retreat was going on and I was coming in to do an introductory retreat, the last two weeks of it. And I'd never heard any of these teachings. I had no idea what I was... I, I didn't know anything. And so I sat way up back, leaning against the piano, in utter agony for two weeks. And yet, something happened. I mean, I, I tried, but the mind was chaotic, the body was screaming. I was young and arrogant and suffering. Who's <laughs> suffering? You know, life is good. And yet, the power of the teachings of the Dharma are so, the, the power of them is that they are so right on. This is the way it is. And if we hear in practice, this is the way it is, we'll come to some really deep, profound, possibly liberating understanding of ourselves. So tonight I want to speak about uh, mindfulness, I want to speak about this practice of awareness that we've undertaken here and to give you some uh, understanding of it so that we can uh, use that understanding in our practice here in a reasonable way, Not, not expecting miracles, but also not Uh, being careless with our time and energy here. Maybe the first um, topic to clarify is that there are many forms of meditation from many different traditions, many different sects within the traditions and different teachers within each sect. And there are just a tremendous amount of technique and endless uh, teachings. How are we to make sense of all that when we begin? The broad division of all meditations is into two, two categories. There are meditations that we use or that we develop to essentially calm the mind. And this is one one way of developing the mind in the Buddhist teaching is to learn how to calm the mind. And some teachers will teach a mantra or a visualization, or in this tradition, we often teach loving-kindness or metta or compassion, karuna, as a way of kind of taming. This monkey mind that is just all over the place. And the way we do that is to get our meditation object, the sound of a mantra, the visualization, the sight of a visualization, the feeling or the intention of uh, loving thoughts, we get that as an object in our meditation. It's called an object because it is what we send our mind to. We pick up that object with the mind over and over and over and over again, repetitively, recurringly, as continuously as possible, and in time we see that the mind stays on that object with more continuity. There are some eruptions and bumps in the road, but with practice, we can stay more continuously on the sound, on the sight, on the thought of loving-kindness or others. And this has the effect of not allowing anything else into the mind. Your worries, your fears, your you know disappointments from the past, your excitements about the future can't get into the mind because The momentum of your intention and energy is so unidirectional towards the object you've chosen that nothing can get in. Well, the subjective feeling of this experience is one of feeling calm. We feel calm. We feel relaxed. We feel at ease. We feel very uh, stable. Because the mind is not going here, going there, to this, that. It's not reacting to uh, anything with delight, or fear, or judgment. It's just going to this object that we've chosen. And so knowing how to calm the mind in this way is a great, extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful tool in our lives. And it is worth uh, developing this capacity to some degree so that we can calm the mind when it is overwhelmed or when it's uh, caught in reactivity. And just knowing how to do that is, is really uh, a great boon in our life. And it is, in fact, the uh, experience of calmness and stability and a sense of confidence and assurance that comes with it that most of us seek in our meditation. We, 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 we want to feel calm, we want to feel collected. we want to feel at ease, we want to feel relaxed and not pushed and pulled and badgered and reactive. And so we often look for that or we often try to practice in a way that cultivates or results in that kind of meditation. Now, the Buddha taught many uh, different ways of, of developing this kind of concentration or stability of mind and for the benefit of tranquility. The benefit, the calmness, the clarity, the stability, the confidence. That comes lasts for as long as you continue to send your mind to that object. When you stop sending your mind to that object, gradually the momentum wears away and the ordinary events of life start to erupt in the mind again with all of our habitual and predictable reactive habits. We get irritated, and angry, and frustrated, and disappointed, and excited, and what not. And we may think, oh, my meditation is ruined. But it's only because we've stopped doing it, We stopped sending the mind to the object. And so, of course, the mind is going to fall back into its, well, habits. There's another kind of practice that is taught by the Buddha and somewhat in other traditions. And it's really the the training of the mind to understand the way things are. And why do we do that? Because of wrongly understanding the nature of the body, the nature of the mind, Our relationships and interactions with one another, because we don't understand them clearly, precisely, we get entangled in them. We become reactive to different physical experiences, mental experiences, interpersonal experiences, and we get caught in anger and frustration, disappointment. And so the understanding is, well, if we If we could understand correctly the nature of the body, the nature of the mind, the nature of cause and effect, then we would live in harmony with it. If we really understood it, we could then live in harmony with the way things are and stop struggling with, and stop expecting things that are unrealistic to expect to stop seeking that which is unrealistic to achieve. Because we would then understand, oh, this is the way it is. And so, this, the momentum of this whole kind of practice is towards understanding. Understanding how the mind gets caught in reactive patterns or habits. So what we're doing here, in this retreat is a little bit of both. We want to stabilize the mind enough so that we can see things clearly. We, you know, if the mind is just restless and just going here and going there, we're, we're not going to see things clearly and we'll get entangled in our uh, reactive patterns. So we want to pay attention to something with some consistency or some continuity so that we can calm down the mind. And once we calm down the mind a little bit, we can see a little more clearly. But we don't want to become so absorbed in a single experience that we don't give ourselves the opportunity of understanding reactive patterns when they arise. So it takes something of a balance. In the first few days of retreat, all of you will be uh, trying to do both without really being able to distinguish one from the other. You're trying to calm down, but also trying to understand And the kind of instructions I'm giving you won't allow you to get too absorbed, uh, so you'll, you'll still be bothered by things. But I'm not going to teach you <laughs> tranquility meditation. And if I see you trying to practice tranquility meditation, I'm going to throw a rock in your pond. <laughs> Keep your things riled up. But I want to talk about this kind of insight meditation, or wisdom uh, practice, that we're doing here. But to do that, it's important to understand why we do it. We do this kind of practice so that we can understand the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, the nature of our personality, the nature of human interactions, and then learn to live in harmony with the way things are, rather than struggling with the way things are. So we need to know how to practice correctly, or how to practice in a way that will show us the way things are. And for that we need, we need some information. We need to know what it is we need to know. What do we need to know in order to practice correctly? Well, we need to know why we're practicing, how to practice, the techniques of practice. This kind of information is knowledge that I will be offering you in instructions, that some of you will be reading in the books that I've offered you, that we've heard from other teachers, other Dharma talks. We have a lot of information to support our practice here. You talk to someone and you hear their experience. This is information. It helps you to have some idea of how to practice. We've all heard of the teachings of the Buddha on impermanence. Really important, uh, vital Uh, teachings of the Buddha. He said it is so important to really understand the nature of impermanence, that all things are impermanent. Well we know that up here in our mind. We know that things change, we know that things are impermanent. We can use that knowledge in our practice. When we're practicing and something is going on that's unpleasant, You know, the body starts hurting, and the mind is screaming about something, or somebody beside you is snoring, or whatever. Remind yourself, this experience is impermanent. And immediately, it gives you some relief, just knowing, okay, okay, it's impermanent. The question to ask yourself is, can I bear it now? Can I bear it for a minute or two? for the end of the sitting, for, at all. Because when we ask ourselves, can I bear with this, we almost always can. But if we don't remember the teachings of impermanence, the mind has this sneaky little habit of believing it's gonna be this way forever. The mind doesn't say, this is the way it's gonna be forever, but it feels that way. Take a look in your own practice. When you come up against something that's unpleasant and just see if there isn't a f- sense, a feeling like, oh my God, if this, if this lasts the whole retreat, I'm never gonna be able, to, I'm not gonna stay. Well, it's because in that situation, we don't bring the knowledge that we already have are impermanent into our practice. And so knowledge is helpful in guiding our practice. We also need to use our own intellect, not just information, we need to think clearly about what it is we know, what it is we see in our own experience. I remember after I'd done about eight years of retreats back in the early years. And I'd done eight years of retreats with different teachers here in the States. And uh, I was practicing, but I was struggling with practice. I I wasn't doing too good. But I was doing the work that needed to be done. And I remember thinking at one point, or I was on a retreat and I was thinking about my life, and I couldn't see how more of the same was going to be any better. And I just looked at my life, you know—the wine, women, songs, drugs, sex, and, <laughs> rock and, and rock and roll, or whatever. You know, I looked at it. I said, "More of this is not better," and I didn't see any reason to keep going in that direction and that was part of the seed for heading to the monastery for five years and and trying another way but when we stop and reflect on what it is we know already about our life, about our experience, about what is of value to us, about what it is we are looking for Or aspiring to in our life, we can use our own intelligence to make decisions, to practice more skillfully. I mean, all of you are here for a reason. Something in your life that you've reflected on has indicated it's time to go on retreat. That's using your intelligence. So we have information, we have intelligence, And the third thing that we need in practice is insight. We need to pay such close attention to our moment-to-moment experience that we get it, we grok it. That we get beneath the appearance of things and see deeply into oh, this is the nature of the mind. This is the nature of the body. This is the nature of fear. This is the nature of ambition. This is the nature of jealousy. And only by this careful, mindful, moment-to-moment mindful attention are we able to get that insight, to get that deep understanding that comes not from thinking, but from observation. The other day I, was, I saw some deer out here. I, was, I came a day or two early and I was watching some deer. And I reflected on, again, The nature of deer. Now if you had never seen deer you'd think well to know about deer you go to Wikipedia or Google and type it in the nature of deer or just deer and you'd get everything you need to know but you wouldn't know anything from your own experience and yet all you need to do is watch deer as they browse in the forest, as they relate to each other, as they pay attention to signs or or sounds that might arouse fear in them. And if you watch them for a little while you understand something about deer that you got not from thinking but just from observation, just from observing. Knowledge comes into the mind, insight. Same happens here on retreat. We can think about our life and we can know certain things. But more important and maybe more profound, more profound knowledge is to be gained through insight from observation. So much of our practice here is just learning how to observe the events of our life, the experiences of life, in a way that can reveal the nature of this mind and body. So we need to learn how to observe in this way to gain insight. Learning to observe itself is challenging enough. How to understand what we observe is even more challenging. So let me say, meditation is the work of the mind. It's not about your posture, it's not about what you're doing with your body, it's about what you're doing with the mind. And yet we have this body, we sit, we walk, we go to the toilet, we eat, we move around, it's painful, we adjust, we do all this. But all that is not the work of the mind. The mind knows all that. And so what we're doing here is cultivating the mind. And we can do it in any posture. We don't, we don't really talk about posture here too much, we just say pay attention, sit comfortably. How you sit? Doesn't matter. You can meditate in any posture or no posture. And it's good to practice that way because in time we may be in a condition where we can't sit, or we can't walk, or we can't stand, and yet we still have the mind. So it's good to learn to distinguish that the work we're developing, the work we're doing here, With awareness and insight is the work of the mind. There is a body but the body doesn't know anything. It's the mind that knows. And the work of this meditation is to change the qualities of the mind. We all have grown up in a family, in a culture, in a society, and doing the best we can, have managed to survive. But let's face it, we all have some dysfunctional, uh, emotional uh, mind bombs planted in our personal history. We're just not, we just, uh, you know, we, we did doing the best we can we just not always able to be uh, really emotionally intelligent in response to uh, the conditions that appear in our life. And those uh, habits get established early in our life and we repeat them endlessly until we get into, well, here we are. And we recognize that this is not, this is not particularly skillful. You know, my, my reactive patterns of impatience or anger or jealousy or fear or shame or whatever whatever you've been looking at today, not particularly skillful. And yet, we can't stop doing it. These habits of the mind are extraordinarily deeply rooted. And even though we understand they're not skillful, and even though we can see them, when they arise, we can't stop them. It's only by training the mind away from habits and towards wholesome qualities of mind that we'll be able to do that. That's what we're doing here. Cultivating the wholesome qualities of mind to uproot, to overcome and eventually uproot the what? Unskillful habits of mind. We talk about practicing skillfully. If all you're doing is uh, kind of a metronomic practice where you're just repeating a, s- a mantra, for example, over and over again, om, 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 om. you don't need to think about it too much. You just got to keep doing it. it. It doesn't take much intelligence to just keep going, om, 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 or whatever other. That's not to deny the effect. It can have a profound calming and tranquilizing effect. But it doesn't, you don't have to really use your mind in a very intelligent way to do that. But in Vipassana practice, and mindfulness practice, we have to use our intelligence to know how to practice correctly and to continue to practice correctly. So we need to think about how to practice. So you might notice that I'm not going to give you too many techniques in this retreat. I'm going to talk about how to understand your practice. How to understand your experience. Because I don't want to offer you a technique that you can kind of grab onto as, oh this is it. And just doing it mindlessly. You know, I could say, pay attention to the breath calm your mind by staying on the breath as long as you can, and as soon as you find yourself off the breath, come back to the breath. Well, I've done that for years, habitually, repetitively, without much intelligence. It has its effect, it has a calming effect but it doesn't lead to understanding how to practice skillfully. So, our usual thinking leads us into fear, frustration, ambition, disappointment, planning, scheming, strategizing to get what we want. But in practice, we wanna think about how to practice skillfully. And so whatever you hear and whatever you read in the books that I've offered you, we need to ask, ask ourselves frequently, how am I practicing? Am I practicing well? Is there awareness here? What do I have to do to be aware in this situation? And it takes that kind of, that kind of thinking is skillful because it supports your practice. Thinking that just leads to worry and anxiety and frustration not, not not particularly helpful. Insight practice cannot be done through blind obedience to a technique. Not possible. But it's only through the development of our own understanding and really coming to know our own triggers, if you will. What is it in here that trips us into some entanglement that causes us suffering? One uh, understanding that supports our practice is called uh, the right view. And in the Buddha's teachings, right view holds a prominent place in the Noble Eightfold Path. And it is uh, maybe the most, uh, as the Buddha said, it is the source of the most suffering in all of humankind, having wrong view. Now, Sariputta was the the right hand uh, monk of the Buddha. And he's the second in wisdom to the Buddha. And he was asked, well, what is it that causes or condition's right view in our mind? How do we get right view? And he said, there are two factors that give rise to right view. The first is, you need to hear what the right view is from someone else. And the second is, you need to cultivate wise attention. We have to hear what right view is from someone else. So what's right view? I'm going to tell you. All that you experience is not you, not yours, not who you are. The experiences of the body, not you, not yours, not who you are. The experiences of the mind, not you, not yours, not who you are. Come on. How can I believe that? That is so counterintuitive to our experience, isn't it? Everything about us is, it's all about me. (laughs) Right? And that's why it is so difficult to to acquire right view from our own experience. It is so counterintuitive. And yet, now you've heard it. If you practice with wise attention, you will discover confirming experience to what you've just heard. But it's not easy. If it's not me, not mine, not who I am, what is it that we're observing in all of this package of physical and mental, emotional stuff that we call me. One of my teachers in Burma, Saito Tajania, says it's all nature. This is the nature of the body. When we feel whatever we feel in the body, this is the nature of the body. So we step out into the sun midday, about lunchtime. We step out in the sun and uh, it's cool air, and the sun is beaming down on you, and you can feel the warmth of it, how do you feel? Ah, wow, you know, it's just, you don't even have to think about how you feel. It's just there, isn't it? It's just there. Did you choose that response? Did you choose that feeling? Did you choose that appreciation? We didn't have anything to do with it. It is a natural result of the cause and conditions that were coming together at that time. Anyone who stepped out there like that would have that same or similar experience. It is just the result of causes and conditions giving rise to their inevitable effect. Okay really? Well, until we see that this is how it's unfolding, it's hard to believe. Same with the mind. Somebody was talking about something in one of the groups today. Oh, an experience that led them to have a lot of anger. And I said, you know, and went through the story of how this anger arose and It feels like it's my anger. I'm so angry. And of course if you identify with this experience as me and mine, you'll be miserable. You really will. But if you can understand, if you can begin to understand, this aversion is conditioned by causes and conditions that have arisen and there's no other than with awareness, there's no way to have a different response. When things are unpleasant in the body, unpleasant in the mind, unpleasant in the environment, the mind will react with aversion. No no doubt about it. It's not your fault. It's It's not yours. That's what the mind does. When the mind experiences unpleasant, it will resolve or it'll be, it'll give rise to aversion. When the mind experiences something pleasant, it will respond with or react with attachment, enjoyment. Unless we're practicing awareness. If we're practicing awareness and understanding, then things change. But until we are, we get caught in thinking, I'm angry. Well, having heard right view, one way you can use right view in your practice when you experience unpleasantness is to know that, oh, this, this aversion, whether it's anger, frustration, disappointment, irritation, has arisen due to causes and conditions. So then you can say, oh, this is the nature. This experience is indicative of, or it's a display of, the nature of aversion, or it is the nature of fear, or it is the nature of jealousy. All of us in this room experience all of these emotions in our life. They're not unique to us. Yes, we have our own particulars, the person, the time, the place, but we all have the same patterns of reactivity in the mind. And yet, because we don't know right view, we think it's me, we think it's mine. What the practice of awareness can show us is that this is a deeply conditioned nature of the mind. It's the nature of the mind. It's the nature of mental activity. It's the nature of the body that we're experiencing. And so it's helpful in practice to to even articulate your experience in this way. what is being observed is the nature of the body. What is being observed or known is the nature of the mind. It's the nature of this uh, emotion. It's the nature of the fear. It's the nature of jealousy. It's the nature of desire. It's the nature of shame. It's the nature of feeling overwhelmed. We have our own story, but The experience is conditioned by other than us. When we see that, when we begin to see that this is anger, or anger is being known, or the nature of anger is being known, instead of I'm so angry, we'll begin to see the distance, we'll begin to uh, feel the spaciousness in the mind without getting entangled in the anger, is mine. Are you with me? It's a little bit, it's a little bit dense, but it's really important to, to begin to understand that that which arises is the very nature of the mind and the body. How do we know that meditation is the work of the mind? How do, you, how do you recognize the mind? Uh, I'm going to ask you to do something. We're sitting here. Now, feel, feel your right hand. Feel what your right hand feels like. Feel that? What did you feel? Sensation, pulsing, heat, heaviness, tightness, cramping, something like that. How do you know that? You know that because the mind was there. The mind knows that. And yet there's no tangibility to this mind, is there? You can't find the mind. You can find your hand, but you can't find the mind. But we know it's there because we know the experience. This is what we want to pay attention to in practice. What is it that's being known? And are we aware of the fact of knowing Mm -hmm. moment by moment? We've lived life for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 or more years. You know, and life goes on quite well without it being, without us being aware of it. But what we're trying to do now is not, not to create some different life, not to create some different experience, but we're trying to bring the mind of knowing to the experiences of the mind and body. We're trying to be aware of what is already going on. In the course of the day, what did you know? What did you aware, what were you aware of? What did you experience? All kinds of physical sensations, all kinds of thoughts, emotions, moods, sights, sounds, memories, plans, strategies. In, well, an infinite array of a great variety of things, right? Is there any one of them that is so important, so vital, so urgent that you've got to hang on to it. You couldn't hang on to it anyway. Have a good thought, you can't hang on to it. Have a good feeling in the body, you can't hang on to that. Have a pleasant emotion, you can't hang on to that. These things are coming and going randomly, outside of your control. And yet, what we're cultivating here is the awareness of them. Of course, awareness is also outside of our control. But we can cultivate it, we can develop it through this practice. What's important in this practice is developing and sustaining the awareness. While sight, sounds, thought, the breath, emotions, plans, memories come and go, cultivating the awareness of them can uh, become strong. We can really see the steadiness. Of the mind when the awareness is continuous. So we talk about the continuity in practice is so important. From the time you wake up, to the time you go to bed, whatever you're doing, know that's what you're doing. Whatever you're experiencing, know that's what you're experiencing. The Buddha said when you breathe in, know you're breathing in. You don't have to practice breathing. The body breathes fine. It has been doing it for a long time. But what's, what we're doing in this practice is learning to know when we breathe in, know when we breathe out, know when we open our eyes, to know when we have a thought, to know when we have an emotion, to know when all of these ordinary, very ordinary, mundane, recurring, repetitive, nothing dramatic, nothing esoteric, nothing very special experiences happen. That's our life. Our life is made up of very ordinary experiences. And yet it's the awareness of them that makes life so special. As my teacher, Upandita, says, A life without awareness is like food without salt. You know, food without salt, it's filling, but not much taste. Yeah? A life without awareness, well, it's filling. It goes by, but there's not much taste. <clears throat> so this awareness that we're, we're cultivating, or mindfulness, is really not forgetting to recognize the present moment. Now, if I tell you, or ask you, to recognize what your experience is right now, you can do that. What, what, are, you, what are you feeling right now? in the body, in the mind. Easy. I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling bored, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling hot, I'm feeling cold, I've got an ache in the back, whatever. Easy. To remember to do that without being reminded is hard. It's not difficult to be mindful. It's hard to remember to be mindful. And that's what mindfulness or awareness is. It is remembering. It's not forgetting to acknowledge what this present moment is it has nothing to do with holding on to or focusing on a single object like the breath or sound or sensation in the body it's about not forgetting to recognize the present moment effort. Nothing in life is accomplished without making effort. And in meditation too, we have to make effort. We have to make effort. We have to apply our intention, apply our energy to uh, the instructions in order to get any benefit. But it's important in practice to understand what right effort is. Right effort is, I'll give you an example. As I said just a a little while ago, feeling the sensations in your right hand. Now I want you to um, feel the sensations in your buttocks against the cushion or chair. Feel that? How much effort did that take? Nothing. Nothing. It didn't take any effort, did it? All you you had to do is have the intention in your mind and direct your attention to that spot in the body. That's all it took. That's all the energy and effort that's needed in every moment of our practice. We never need more than that. More than that is too much. Then we get into struggling, striving, trying to create some, well, meditative experience. So watch in your own practice, when you feel like you're struggling, when, you're, when you've got your furrowed brow, and your gritting teeth, and your hunched shoulders, and you're really trying hard. Too much effort, too much, not necessary. Instead, what we want to do is use our intelligence and ask ourselves, what in this moment is being known? That's it. If you can remember to ask yourself that question and have a clear response to it, that's all that's required. What in this moment is being known? It can be physical, it can be mental, it can be inner, it can be outer, it can be gross, it can be subtle, it can be familiar, it can be novel. It doesn't matter. The object that's being known is going to change moment by moment. The quality of knowing is going to arise each moment you remember to notice and recognize it. That's what we're cultivating here. Not the object, we're cultivating the awareness. So in in one sense, we could say that right effort is continuity. Perseverance. Not the grim, grit-your-teeth perseverance, but it's just persevering moment after moment to remember. Ask yourself, what is being known? What is being known? And if we can answer that question, that's good enough. That's it. We don't have to aim, we don't have to look, we don't have to focus, we don't have to bear down on anything. We just have to intelligently ask and answer the question, what is being known? So this work of meditation is to pay this kind of attention from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed. And that's hard, you know, because the habits of the mind would rather be doing other things. Worrying, planning, Fretting, stewing about one thing or another. And so we have to be persistent in not getting entangled in the activity of the mind, but rather to step back and ask ourselves, what is it that's being known? And to articulate, oh, the nature of the body or the nature of this emotion or the nature of thinking, the nature of worrying. That's what's being known. And when we see it that way, that's it. We don't have to do anything with it. If we get entangled in the sensations in the body, the thoughts in the mind, the emotions in the heart, well then we've got something else to be, that's being known. (coughs) It's important to uh, stay relaxed, to be relaxed in the body, to be relaxed in the mind. And as I mentioned this morning, to be relaxed in the body know what to do. You scan the body, you find some holding, and you relax. You just let go, settle down, let go, let go, until you're relaxed. When I ask you to relax your mind, what do you do? You know, (laughs) somehow, (laughs) we try to relax our mind. Well, to relax the mind means to let go of any agenda in your practice, to let go of any goal, to let go of any trying to accomplish, achieve, get, create, avoid, anything. But instead to just observe, this is the way it is right now. That's it, that's all we need to do. Just ask ourselves what's being known and to observe it. As I mentioned to one of the groups today Saito suggests that we consider our meditation practice a marathon rather than a sprint, because it takes time. It takes time to uh, cultivate the mind, to develop a momentum of awareness, and to learn the skill of being aware and not being entangled, not, not falling into the conditioned habits of the mind. It takes practice over and over again. Dozens of times getting caught and seeing and beginning to understand how it is we get caught in our, uh, by our triggers of emotional reactivity. And in seeing them, we begin to understand. Just as uh, observe anything, and you'll begin to understand deeply its nature. So too if we observe over and over again How we get caught, how we get free, we begin to understand, deeply understand the nature of this body, the nature of this mind. Again, Sayadaw Utashiniya says, When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you'll naturally want to practice more. And this will help you to do well in life. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities change as well. And through such understanding, you'll naturally practice more. And this will help you to do well in life. let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.